0: Good morning. I am Roma Weston and I am an alcoholic and I am from Omaha, Nebraska. It's nice to be here this morning. It is me my privilege and pleasure to be here this morning. I look out at you and I just can't imagine how many people got up at 8 o'clock at least in the morning, 8.15 in the morning. That's amazing. Maybe not for the Alamo. It's alcohol. I met some lovely people here. It's already been a nice weekend for me. You know, I think getting away and having the privilege of visiting with other people throughout the United States—it teaches me every time I go and talk to other alcoholics. It teaches me more and more about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the things that I have to live with on a daily basis. And you know, I've been on the program, well, March the 22nd, 1969. I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink or any other mind bending chemical since then, and I am indeed grateful. <laughs> because from whence I came to where I am today, it is not humanly possible for me to be standing here looking out at you people this morning and telling you that I am not well, weller, than I have ever been in my entire life. Inside, weller. That itself is a miracle. It is not possible. And of my own, it isn't. And the longer I stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more I realize how much I need the program about. I need it more today than I ever have. You don't get older and wiser and not need the program. I think the wisdom comes when you realize how sick you really were. It's taken me a long, long time to realize the depth of my disease and what it did for me and how it affected me. And maybe I was predisposed to be an alcoholic. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I used to be like, what happened to me, and what I'm like today. I know there's a lot of new people here in this room this morning. People that have problems on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've talked to some of you. Just since yesterday, I've heard some of the things that we go through. And you know, sometimes people think when they come to Alcoholics Anonymous that we get sober, we clean up, and that we don't have tragedies. That things don't happen to us in Alcoholics Anonymous. That once we get sober, we get all the goodies. And nothing should, no life problem should face us. But that's wrong. At least I found it out. I've had a lot of things in 17 years happen in my life. And a lot of unpleasant things have happened in my life. And I've looked at my program and said, what is wrong with my program? Then I had to realize that I'm a human being. And that I'm not going to be shielded from normal problems that happen to the rest of the world out there because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I will guarantee you one thing, that I can handle those crises and problems better than I ever could in my entire life, because I couldn't handle them before I came here. So you have given me the tools to work with. And I i wanted to say that this morning. Uh, At least I forget. Because so many times we are new and we think, why is this happening to me? I'm sober. I'm doing well. I'm trying to do all of the things that I did before but these things happened to me. I used to think that, and I've come to really believe that I can handle them now, and I've had to. And some of you people are having to handle those things. And some of them with a lot less sobriety than I did when I first started to handle handle just life problems. This is a living program that we're living with here in Alcohol Anonymous. You know, I know how to die. I die every day. Every day I, I really know how to die. I just, my problem was that I didn't know how to live. I did not know how to live amongst a society and a world that I neither respected or understood. And for you new people, I hope that you stay long enough in Alcoholics Anonymous to find the magic, the thing that makes it all right for you to stay here with us. If you haven't found that name in your home group, or within the people you associate in Alcoholics Anonymous, go find a new meeting. Go find some more members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Get that feeling, because it is going to be necessary to have it. You know, for me to stand up here this morning and just live without booze or without chemicals, hanging on by a two-string, no. I would not be here this morning if that's all it offered me. I stop and I think about it and I think how grateful I am. And that I still feel that magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. I look around this room today and that feeling is here. It is for me. I found it. I found the one thing that makes it all right. And I never thought I would. I'll tell you, I guess I have to tell you why I think I'm predisposed to be an alcoholic. I grew up in uh, Los Angeles. I am. I came into the program in Los Angeles, California. I'm going to quit saying that because I've lived in the Midwest. And, uh God, I, I all I do is listen to uh, Western music anymore. I've lived in the Midwest about six or seven years. And I've gone every place in the Midwest. Jesus, I've been over Kansas and Missouri and all doing AA things. And I've gotten so I don't hardly ever want to go back to California. So I guess I'm a Midwesterner. So, of course, I, but I was born and raised there in California, and I came from a large family. I am of Oriental and Latin descent. My mother was Mexican, born in Sonora, Mexico. My father is Chinese. And uh, I was out to California last week to see my father, because on March the 15th, I was also out there. My father celebrated his 100th birthday. You can't imagine the joy I had to be able to attend his 100th birthday, to be sober and to be clean. He's a little man, not quite five feet tall. But to me, he's always been ten feet tall. He was the only thing in my life I gave a damn about. My mother, the warden, The woman was tough. Just but tough. She lived to be 96 years old. And they both got to see me sober and clean and a different person. And you know, in the years that have passed in Alcoholics Anonymous, I can do things that I never did before. As I said, I came from a large family. There was 21 of us kids. There are 17 of us that survived, and uh, there's 14 of us living today. My oldest brother is basically, I'm one of the youngest. I'm the youngest of nine living girls. I have uh, five brothers still living today. We lost two brothers in the Second World War and one in the Korean police inaction. But 14 of us have survived. To the best of my knowledge, I am the only alcoholic. I am the only drug addict. My father is of Buddhist faith, and my brothers do not drink, nor does my father. And uh, my mother went as a very young girl from Mexico, and they sent her to Boston to a Catholic convent. And she grew up in a Catholic convent and went with a group over to China as a young lady, perhaps thinking of going into the, becoming a nun. And she met and married my father in China. And my parents, prior to my mother passing away, uh, had been married 70 years. It was not an acceptable thing. You know, you can go over to convert them, but God, don't bring one home. <laughs> My mother's family never forgave her. They never spoke to her again. She was, uh, never to see any of them. And I often think about that, and it still makes me mad. Alcoholics Anonymous has not really been able to take that away yet. But you know, it was strange. I was always different. I was the only tall one. I'm taller than any of my brothers. Got the biggest feet,
1: The ugliest
0: one. I was this height when I was ten years old. Now my parents that were both five feet tall. Can you imagine? And a household of little people. <laughs> and I wore a size nine shoes then, but it was clipped away because I was gangly and skinny. The only left-handed one of the bunch. I couldn't even bend down to touch my knees. I was awkward. I was just an ugly kid. I could probably sum it up for you. I could probably tell you this, I I was a rotten, no-good kid with a real bad attitude, and I hadn't even had a drink, and I grew up, started drinking, and was a rotten, no-good kid with a bad attitude. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and after two years in the program, I was still a rotten kid with a bad attitude. It took a lot of work in Alcoholics Anonymous to start making that change. But you know, I, above all, it never seemed to bother any of my other sisters and brothers, it never seemed to bother any of them that my mother had catechism in our house. My brothers made benches and put it under our steps because we had a big house. And I thought, why is she doing this for people who, she can't even go in with well, she could go into church, but I mean, she couldn't take communion, and that seems to be important. And I said, why is she doing this? How weak can she really be? But you know what? I learned now, you taught me this now, because it's none of my business. Absolutely none of my business. They seemed to understand. I had to learn it in Alcoholics Anonymous that there are no free lunches. They knew that. They apparently knew what they were doing. I didn't think so, because I let them know it, and in no uncertain terms. They sent me to church, and I ran away. said, why should I go there? They hate us. And terrible things happened to me when I when I was growing up. I felt like the kid on the outside of a candy store looking in. I never had enough money to go in and join the rest of them. I felt like that in the house. I had a sister that was... I have a sister that's 11 months uh, older than I am. A little goody (laughs) two-shoes. And she bobbled around and just danced and just did everything. She played the cello. Oh, she did the ballet, and she could bend down backwards and touch her toes. I couldn't even bend forward and touch my toes. (laughs) (laughs) And when my mother sold... She made so to fit her and mine two sizes or three sizes bigger, except I was skinny, so they hung on me like a bag. But she looked darling. And they called me the kid and the brat and the baby, and they called me Olive Oil. And then I started beating the hell out of them, and they called me
1: Popeye. <laughs>
0: you know, kids can be cool. I don't really like them to this day. I really don't. I don't like kids. And yet I keep sponsoring. These kids are coming in. I had to buy a bigger house. I keep saying, I don't want you around. Why are you hanging around with no shoes and no clothes and no place to go? I don't even like kids and they think it's funny. I bought a bigger house so I can get a lot more of these kids that I don't like in it. (laughs) But kids can be cruel. And in a family that large where there's Here's a lot of love, except I guess I didn't understand it. I felt like I was a kid in Grand Central Station, watching everything go by, because I was never a part of anything. I never fit in. And I guess that's the symptomatic thing of our disease, so many of us feel that way, that we're not part of, that we're not walking to the same tune or to the same drummer, that we don't hear the same things. We don't see them. I remember uh, when my father bought a house my father came to the United States. There was 11 of us. 11 of the kids were born outside of the United States. My father went from China, took my mother from China because she was simply thrown out, uh, to the Philippines. And from the Philippines, he went to the Hawaiian Islands. And then from the Hawaiian Islands, eventually to the United States. But the alien quota was so low that it took him many, many years to have come into the United States. He had to come in as a student. So my father graduated from the University of California at Berkeley, with a master's degree, a doctor's degree, I should say, in languages. And he was, wanted to go back home to teach. And my mother, being the good Catholic woman that she was, just kept having more kids. <laughs> and he never could afford to go home. So he had to go into the import and export business. So that's what my father did for a living, up until really the Second World War, when his business was just completely wiped out, because all of his was, of course, from the Orient. that's what my grandfather had been in the same type of business and that's all my father basically really knew and so that's the business he went into and uh one of his clients that was a very good customer of his had a marvelous and a beautiful old home on west Adams garden it at that time off of Figueroa, it was a marvelous area with just beautiful old home and his wife passed away and he said I'd like for you to have the house. I'd like for you to buy the house for your family because she loved all of the Oriental uh, antiques that you got her. And uh, we just, I'd, I'd like for you to have the house. And the neighbors signed a petition and got together and went to see Mr. Chester Brown was his name and they have a park down the street from our house that was named for him. And offered him more money for the house. And the family discussed things. And I heard my father talking to my older brothers and sisters about it. And uh, I heard him say, uh, Mr. Brown said, no, he didn't need the money. He didn't take the money. He said, I've already committed the house, and he will, that family will live here. And I, again, the hatred welled up in me. And I listened to my father, and I thought, what a weak man. Because he told my brother and my older sisters, he said, how would you like it if some strange-looking family moved into your neighborhood, and they said they have 17 kids right next door to you. How would you take it? I don't think you'd be too happy either. And I thought, why make excuses for so people? Why do that? I'll never will make an excuse, and I hated it. And my father said he will treat the neighbors, and he will do all the things, and you will not run across their yards, and you won't do any of those things. And the warden was standing right behind him, and I knew he wouldn't. <laughs> didn't stop me, though. I took all the air out of every every one of them tired. <laughs> I was a hateful kid. Just another thing to put a notch on the gun that I was to play Russian roulette most of my life with. You see, I couldn't understand that. Why? Everybody else good. My entire family seemed to understand that, and I was the only one who didn't understand it. Each one of them was another notch of hatred. Oproving and resenting the world and the people in it, so I certainly was predisposed to become what I was. At 13 and a half years old, I found it necessary to leave home. It was too painful for me to live there. I had cried my last tear at 11 years old when they were making fun of me. I uh, I hated it when I had to have a new pair of shoes, because it was a everybody looked at them. They, they couldn't believe it. My father wore like a six. And I was a nine and narrow, and they all played with my fame. And I remember I had this lump in my throat so big that I thought if I swallowed it would choke me to death. And I said to myself, and I remember it, just like it was today, I never want to feel that way ever again. I never want to feel this way. And as I stand right here today, I've never felt that way. I felt so totally isolated and alone and the knot and the ache inside literally was choking me to death. And I knew it at 11 years old. I knew I'd have to leave. Alcohol in our family was not a problem, obviously. There was alcohol in the house, but that was for the guests. No one else seemed to have a problem, and I didn't start drinking at home. I left home, as I said, at 13 and a half years old, and I didn't really run away. I had stolen my brother's car with the, the beating, that it really didn't make any difference. I learned how to drive, because I knew I was going. And I told my father, I said, I've got to go. I had graduated from the ninth grade, and I knew I was leaving. And my father said to me, of all of my children, I should have sent you home. You've never known any peace whatsoever. And he was right. And he said, if you stay and don't leave, I'll never tell your mother what we talked about, and I will help you. And I thought, what does he know? What does he really know how I feel? He couldn't possibly know. And I I left home. I said no. It was my first decision, and I was to make a lot of buck ones for a lot of years. And he told me that I would never know peace, because I had nothing inside of me. And he told me that my road would be long and hard. And he said, you cannot give what you do not have. You see, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous some 30 years after that more than 30 years and you told me the same thing. You told me it was an inside job and you told me I'd have to get something in there. It's gut level. I had all of the information. My father can't come from one of the oldest ways of life on the face of this earth. And years later in total desperation I decided to follow my father's faith and I am a Buddhist faith. And I will tell you I don't give a darn how old it is And how many times I got on my knees, and what I did, nothing helped. Nothing helped. I am a product, really, of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not as a survivor, because that I am. I left and went to San Francisco, and I took my first drink. I was an old-looking kid. I've always been old. I I really don't know how it feels to be a kid. Because when I walked out of that house, I was since 21 years old. I sat on a bar in San Francisco, and I will tell you to this day, I have no, I do not know why I sat on a bar stool. Drink was not my thought. But I sat on a bar stool, and I'll tell you what I ordered, and I strongly suspect that it had to be what the guy next to me was drinking. Because I didn't know a drink. Really. I ordered a double shot shot a Stearnoff Blue Label with a water back. Now, do you know what Blue Label is? You out these out too. that's 100% booze. That's 100% vodka. I didn't know anything about it. I ordered it. Uh, it Damned if I didn't drink it. (laughs) And that's what I drank. I didn't drink sweet drinks. I didn't drink before dinner drinks. I didn't drink after dinner drinks. Those little cavatiers. With the stuff floating on the top and the little things that big? Water glass. That's the way I drank. Now, I didn't think there was any reason why I was going to have to ever have total recall. So I honestly do not know why I started drinking that. No miracle happened. I just drank. I didn't think, boy, this is wonderful and I found it. I didn't think anything. I just sat down and drank and had my first cigarette. And just puffed away and drank away. I became a thief and a liar and a cheat and all the things that you do uh, when you live like I've lived. Now, I promised my father that uh, I would start high school. He sent me, he really sent me, I didn't realize that, I thought I did it all on my own, but I came to find out many years later that I lived in Chinatown with friends of my father. I don't suppose the warden ever really, I don't know whether the woman looked for me, because she couldn't remember my name. I mean, she'd call off five or six people's names as I stood there, and finally, she would look at me, and I thought, well, I always knew it was me that was in trouble. But she would be so furious, she'd call off four or five other names, and finally she'd say you. (laughs) I'd say me. She was busy trying to marry off the oldest girl, so I don't even think she missed me. Probably didn't miss me for a couple of weeks. I don't know where they ever looked for me. never asked. I lived in San Francisco, and, as I said, I became all those things. I don't believe that I was an alcoholic at that point as far as the physical part of this disease because I drank for many years with total impunity. I was able to drink. I didn't start to school in san francisco i uh since it was during the Second World War, the latter part of the Second World War, I just used, uh, I told them I was, it was an embarkation center, and I told them I was waiting for my husband to come back. And so I gave them all my brothers uh, serial numbers and everything, so I had no problem. The Red Cross was nice to me, and I even got a job in San Francisco at a little the lingerie place, Grayson, and it was a cheap outfit. And uh, they didn't, I resented them because they didn't let me out in the front to sell. I was in the back and I would clip off, the lingerie would come in, and it was so bad that it would have all these long strings that would fold them together. And I'd clip off all those and put tags on them. And I started doing a pattern. And when I listen to somebody's fifth step, it's almost amazing. These patterns started way before. I started tagging two for them and four for me. And I'd put them on. And in less than a year, I had enough lingerie to start one of the whole shops myself. I mean, you couldn't possibly wear the stuff out. And I would tag and count and put another one on for me and another one. I'd walk out there some days with at least three weeks on. <laughs> couldn't possibly wear them out the lifetime. But for some reason, they owed me. Can you see the pattern starting? The world owes me that. I did not even feel guilty about it. I have to tell you, I'm one of the ones that came to Alcoholics Anonymous and said, and I hear it, I hear it a lot of times from those that I sponsor. And people I talked to, they said, my guilt drove me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Mine didn't. I didn't feel guilty. I really didn't feel guilty. I never left a night of sleep over anything I did. I figured I was out there on the street. And if anybody was interested in what I was doing or was with listening, uh, they were out for the same thing. And if I took you, you just weren't able to take me. That was the name of the game. I am a street survivor. That's what I really am. I, uh, about a year later, it, I wasn't making any money in San Francisco. I decided to come back to Los Angeles, and I did. Moved into the east side of town, and I started running narcotics as a runner. It's not a current word today. That was the word then. I started running for some guys. I was not a narcotics user at all. Never had any interest in the stuff. And I found out that running through alleys and doing all those things for somebody else didn't pay all that much. I also discovered that honest work didn't pay that much either. I learned that pretty young. Didn't pay much. Still doesn't. I'm just not willing to go to those anymore for it. I was right there. I, uh... I started the school when I came back to when I came back to Los Angeles. And I had no good reason to do so. I did it for my father. Because uh, there wasn't a person in this world I really, as I said before, really cared about. But for some reason, I wanted to do it for him. It seemed I was literally driven to do it. And I started at a school called Polytechnic High School and I, I started night class there. And I did my doping and running around and doing all those things in between. So on the streets of Los Angeles, I was going to jail uh, before, I took, before I became an alcoholic, before I crossed over that so-called invisible line into alcoholism, and it wasn't for being drunk. I went down to Mexicali, and I thought, they're making the money and I'm taking the risk. So I went down to Mexicali and made a contact. Being Mexican, I mean, I'm what I am when it's necessary. <laughs> you know, if the trend is going that way, that's what I tell my husband, who's sweetest. I said, listen, be very careful, because the way things are going, I might have to become Chinese again.
1: <laughs>
0: Save all of you. I made my own deal and started dealing my own dope. Before it was popular, before they had all the exotic drugs, we just had the hardcore drugs. The yellow jackets and the reds and the... We just had the, the normal old druggie thing out here on the street and the pot and the rest of it. And I started making a lot of money. But to pay a half for that, I started going to jail frequently. And in those days, in Southern uh, Eastern California, the state of California frowned on those kind of things. And they frowned on it heavily then, Caught with one joint in those days could give you 90 days and a bad reputation. Uh, today I don't think anything of it. A little pot, don't worry about it. That's what I'm told by so many people. Well, my child only smokes pot. And I've been into the institution, Johnny's been into I've looked into the faces and I've watched them. I've watched the scared ones in the institution. And then I come back in a year or six months or so and I see him one more time and I say, yes, Aren't you the young lady? Didn't I meet you out here at minimum pl- What are you doing here? And I see the change in him. I see the hardness. Then I look in the eyes and I see nothing. And I know. And I look around a room like that and I say to them, Most of you will die from what I have most of you will think it'll never happen to me and there's some of you in this room today will think that one day it won't happen to me i'll just take that one drink that one fix that one pill it'll be all right will just take the sharp edge off today and let me get through today and you'll die from this disease i know that you see i wake up every morning with no choice I'm not one, and I often hear it said, and it may be true for them. See, I don't wake up in the morning to make a choice whether I'm going to drink or not drink today, or not use, or... Do you know in 17 years, that one morning would be real crappy, when I woke up, things wouldn't be going my way, and for me to make a choice, well, it'd be to use, be to drink. I can't make that choice. To me, it's living the death. I live here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and if I turn away from you, I'm dead. I have no alternative. My alternative is not, well, I'll just drink now and get back to Alcoholics Anonymous next month. I don't fit Alcoholics Anonymous into my life today. Alcoholics Anonymous is my life. Everything else comes behind it. And Lisa, in this I have a marvelous husband today. He's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And is as active in Alcoholics Anonymous as I am. But he does not come first. And I'll tell you, I love him more than any living person on the face of this earth. I really do, because I never knew love before. But if I had to make a choice between Alcoholics Anonymous and him, I'll tell you where he would be. He would be gone. And for very pragmatic reasons, because without Alcoholics Anonymous, I am a drunk, and I'm a bad one. And if I am drunk, I am no good to myself, and I am no good to him. He needs me like he would need a hole in his head. I have to face over and I have to do that. This program has to come first so all of those other things will be there. Otherwise, they won't be there. I won't have a child able to look at me in the face. I wouldn't have a husband. I wouldn't be able to go see my father. I wouldn't be able to release the feelings throughout the years and gradually feel better about life and even days, and I have them back to back. That's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you know that I have days where I am driving down the freeway and the whole damn day has gone to hell. A driver has put one of my trucks right in the middle of a restaurant. And he's not even sorry about it. He makes a joke. And I thought, he will be fired if I can get my truck out of the people's restaurant. So nothing is right. Insurance is going up, because that's the third in Nebraska. We have those terrible ice storms, and that's the third truck in a month, and my insurance company is saying, and I'm driving home, and I get that feeling inside. I am right with the world. I am not coming from behind. God is in in his heaven, and I am right with the world. And I'm not coming from behind. That's the feeling. Not that all of these things out there... Bring that feeling to me. It's the feeling that Alcoholics Anonymous gives me in that day when the world is looking pretty crappy, and I get that good, marvelous feeling. And I know. I know at a gut level. I know that. The ache is gone. And I'm free. Freer than I've ever been in my entire life. A billion dollars, as I stand here today, a billion dollars. Couldn't buy that. Could not buy that feeling. And believe me, I'm not interested. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous and take any poverty oath. I'll tell you that. I'm not here to prove anything. Oh, I can stay sober with nothing. I can stay sober with something better. <laughs> and I'm willing to work for it. I'm not expecting God to drop it down in a clubhouse and give it to me. Oh, excuse me for that. That's one of my pet peeves. Those that I sponsor oh, do not spend time there. If they want to sit around and come in my office to sit around and tell me how bad the day is. And I'll tell them what life really is doing for them. They don't usually want to hear that. They say, uh, Roma does not take, uh, Roma doesn't have babies, she takes hostages. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you this, they don't come to me. I'm not their first choice. No one comes to me first. I'm the fifth or the sixth or the seventh down the line. Because I don't take a lot of crap. I'm talking about my life in their life. I don't do that. And I expect a lot out of those that I sponsor, and I'll tell you why I expect a lot out of those that I sponsor. Because the program offers a lot. And because half measures avails me nothing. I tried that the first couple of years. It doesn't work. I didn't feel a bit better. And so I like to practice. The principle and the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you come to me, at least for that first year, you will listen. And I will talk. And I don't make suggestions. I give orders.
1: <laughs>
0: My sons call me the general. At least they don't call me the warden.
1: <laughs>
0: I do. I give orders. So said, don't think. That's what got you here. Let us do the thinking. Give me that one year. Come walk with me. The way I found Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I'm an old-fashioned member of Alcoholics Anonymous I still take drunks into my house. I still sober them up. I still expect my babies to take a two-hour shift and sit around the clock with them. If they're well enough, they come. And we walk together. And we call it Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what we call it. We call it the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and what is necessary for me. I still do that today. I don't pat them off to places they see in about 30 40 days. Some of them have to go there, and that's good. If I got you, and one of our doctors, one of our A doctors, says, I think this one can take it, I say, come home with me. And we shake it out together. And my baby get some experience. I still make the old-fashioned 12-step calls, too. Except if you call me, you If it's the middle of the night, you're going to wait an hour or two. If you've been drunk for 20, you can wait till I get my face on.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm not brushing over in my curlers.
1: Because
0: I may be the only thing you ever see from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want the face of Alcoholics Anonymous to look well, because we are. We're every bit of that. We're not second-class citizens, I'll tell you that. We're part of the world and part of the society, and I will tell you this. Half the world lives like us. Wow, And in California they're not cheap. I discovered that. And someone said to me, why are you buying a new house? My daddy, damn, you're a hundred. And I said, because he's my father. That's why. Can you imagine me saying that? A drunk like me, waking up in places. You know, I wasn't a blackout drinker. I remember every bloody place I ever woke up. I made bum decisions as a woman alcoholic. You know, we push everything across the table every bloody thing across the table because boom is that powerful. It will bring you down to your knees as it did me. I kept drinking and I kept doing the same thing and I kept going to jail and it got to the point I had to have a lawyer on retainer. <laughs> and in those days you didn't get that call. You didn't have rights like you have now. God, the criminal will have more rights than I do. You didn't have that. You could be held for 72 hours. And then what they did with me, because my attorney said, you know, don't volunteer any information. They're not all that smart. <laughs> we let them along. If you give them your name, uh, it'll take them a while to find out the rest. So don't volunteer any information. And I wouldn't volunteer any information. You know what they do? Just before my 72 hours up, they shipped me off to another substation. I've been to every substation in Los Angeles. That's pretty bad. They send you all out to the outlining area because somebody thinks that you might be one of the people they can identify, so you'll go out there and be in the lineup. And you've got two weeks of that, you're almost willing to tell them anything. But i I'd held, held out, get a hold of my lawyer, and he'd get me out. And one day he said to me, I'm not going to be able to do it. When the police officers in Los Angeles, when they have you handcuffed on 7th and Broadway and backed up against the wall and are calling you by your first name, you are known in Los Angeles. <laughs> and he said, I'm not going to be able to do it and you're going to have to do some, what we call the day hard times. You're going to have to change something here. So I did. I listened to the man. Now, I was not a user of drugs. He never even tasted it. But I did have one experience in Mexico. I was down in Mexico, in Mexicali, doing my thing, and my connection started to trust me. And matter of fact, he finally looked at me and thought, Girl! But then I had learned how to hide all those little things. Wear down on the forehead, because I got one that's like an egg. And uh, my mother made me wear my hair back like this, like my sister with the cute forehead. Mine shined like a beacon, now I wear it down. See, yeah, I learned all those kind of things. Put on the makeup, do the thing. And uh, finally, the guy looked at me, and we made our regular deal. Except he asked me out for a drink. Now, I had only now he was trusting me. I had the merchandise and also the money. And you know what I did? Money and merch—you can always make another connection. I decided to leave. And do you know that man was upset?
1: <laughs>
0: he was so upset with my friend and myself, my buddy. He wasn't anybody I slept with. He was. Just my buddy. His name was Gene, and uh, we were leaving, and uh he got wind of it. I mean, I just didn't come back to the table. And, uh you know, he got so mad, he started shooting at up. And my friend told me, he said, I want you to jump. And I've seen lots of movies before, and when you jump, nothing happens. You just roll out, your hair is in place, your makeup is on, your false eyelashes are there, you just brush yourself off. Well I did, I jumped. And that's not what happened to me. Because when I rolled in that Mexicali gravel, which is kind of clay and red, with a lot of little stones in it, well, it hit the entire side of me. And uh they didn't know that I hit the dirt. I don't, I, at that time I didn't know whether Jean got away or not. And I'll tell you, I became a full-fledged Mexican. Not half-free, not anything. Full-fledged Mexican. <laughs> But I was afraid to go get any help, and by the time I got back to the border, uh, the infection was in my arm and my leg, and uh, it was swollen and puffy and running out, and uh, I could see a red line, which kind of worried me. And I I got back to Los Angeles, and you know that when I jumped out of that car, I didn't say, if God could get me out of this place, I'll never get back in another one again, or, I just said, if I get out of this, I'll never go to Mexicali again. I have never been back to Mexicali. <laughs> I, uh, they had to do some surgery on me. They had to put me under big magnifying and pick that stuff out. They went in and straight my legs off uh, on my upper I, I was really a mess. And uh, it just wouldn't heal for some reason. Stuff just wouldn't heal. Uh, it, it, they tried everything on me. And it took a long time to heal. It didn't stop me a bit. You see, nothing ever stopped me. And why I wanted all that money? Because I made a lot of money. When you do the things that I did out in the street and you see death, I stepped right over never looked back, never lost a moment of sleep. And I can't stand here, I'd love to be able to stand here this morning and tell you that as, a, that as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, that if there had been young people out in the street that I wouldn't have sold them drugs, I'd be lying to you because I sold it to anybody who had the money. I just wasn't dealing with kids that time. They didn't have that kind of money back there in the 50s. It wasn't prevalent as it is today with the young people. I uh, had to stop all these activities and I took my journey up on it. I got married. Now, I never wanted to be married. I married a guy that he hardly know. can you remember his name today. Oh, yes, I can. But he wasn't like me. He was a gambler. The man just did not understand people like me. I didn't understand him. I didn't know he already had a sickness. But anyway, out of that marriage, which was a very short one, came one son. My oldest son. I used to tell you how old he is. He's in his thirties. I won't tell you where in his thirties. Ten years ago, I would have told you. Now he's in his thirties. And uh I could see that life wasn't going to be too good there because the man would gamble on nothing. I mean, we had 11 cars. In the time I was married to him, we had 11 cars. He only bought him, he never paid for him. he put a downy on him, and he just looked good all the time. Never had anything. He'd go and gamble for two or three days, and uh, when I had the baby, he didn't even know it before uh, because he was out gambling, and there was no way of contacting him, and I knew then I would live. It would probably leave him. It was the only good decision I made. There were two good decisions I made prior to alcoholic and that was one. And I took my son with me, uh, and I didn't take him because I was a marvelous, wonderful mother. I took him because, in an oriental family, my son would have gone to my oldest brother. And I didn't like my oldest brother then. And I don't think too much of him now. <laughs> comes with me, and I took the kid with me. And uh, I must say, I just saw him last week. Everything you'd want in a son. My higher power was good to me, I came to the boy, and I seemed to have that kind of instinctive thing of loyalty, and I took the boy, and I made one statement to them in meditation. I asked for the ability to stay well enough so that my son would never become subservient to any living person. I never wanted my boy to have to ask anybody for a damn thing. So any of the things that I did, I am never sorry for them, and I'm not sorry for them today. I had to get a job, and I was still equipped. I had graduated, by the way. matter of fact, the night I was rolling out of the car was the night I should have gotten my diploma from night school. But I got it, and they sent it over to my dad's house, and he framed it. But I was still equipped to work. I had none of these things that a young lady should have. I had no Skype, hiking skills, and no ability to do really do anything. So I got a job, and I got a job in a, in a rubber plant, making 90 cents an hour, working on a press line at about fifteen and two presses, about 125-degree temperature on a good day. And that's not too appealing to somebody like me who likes to dress well and look well. And I kept watching all these girls in the offices, in the labs there, with their little white coats on and air-conditioning old style. I said, that's where I really belong. Didn't know a thing about what they were doing, but I I knew that I should be in there. One night I was thinking out, thinking once again, an honest job really doesn't pay enough. Because I, uh, I was having to negotiate a lot of other ways to support my son and myself. And uh, I noticed a bulletin on the board there that said, Anybody that wants to do anything and prove their life in life, or to that effect, go see personnel. We're offering some programs. We weren't a big company at that time. And they did. They offered some programs. For those of us who want it it's a better education for one thing chance for advancement and i took that up i took him up on it but for no good for no good reason i just wanted a different job i really didn't want to improve anything except i want to get out of that damn thing so i went to personnel and um, finally got to meet the president of our company and he asked me a number of questions he asked me why i wanted to and i said i want to do better for myself and i looked around his office and thought i belong here <laughs> Looks pretty nice. And then I gave him the usual story that we give him. I told him that I was a kid from the inside of town. That 17 of us, 21 of us lived in this little shack. And I wanted to, and my God, the man said, of course, you're eligible. He didn't ask me anything else. Did you graduate from high school? I said, oh yes, I did that. He said, that's wonderful. That's marvelous. God, how did you do that? to do was get into some school now for the life of a person like me i i will never i don't even understand it today i really don't because i'm not that smart. i keep telling those that i sponsor i have a little brain you guys have the big brain i just have a little one and it tells me to stay close to my book and to new people i don't know about all i'm not one of those pseudo-intellects but anyway i passed an entry examination and got myself into school and since they were going to pay for it, and I told them that I couldn't even afford the tuition. It was, you pay your tuition, they provided you with books, and you had to make passing grades, And you had to take two subjects, even distantly related to our business, whether or not you received credit for them or not. And they told me, he told me, one of the owners, of were three owners, he said, we're going to be big. He said, very big. And that's why we want to do something for those that are with us. And if you come with us, you will grow. And you will become big. And the man was right, we became there. And we did grow. And uh, I said, I'm sorry, I don't even have the money. If I can pass anything, if I can get into any school, I don't even have the initial money. And he said, don't worry about it. The company will even put that. I thought I deserved it. They should. <laughs> so they did. And I'll tell you, I passed an examination, and ultimately ended up graduating from the University of Southern California. I'm a graduate from the University of Southern California. Isn't that something? A person like me. Why should I go to a state schools? They were putting the bill. Why not go to do their And I did. Except I was having problems. In my first term, I was called in. In my second term, I was called in. And the dean of women said to me, uh, you're going to be put on probation. Your grades are not acceptable. And I gave her my story. They put me on probation. And I was working 32 hours. And I want you to know that company did not give me as one of those jobs, and that's what they were. I ended up in a different area and having to work there. They didn't tell me I was going to have to work a minimum of 32 hours. Well, then, I go to school, and I needed about 16 to 18 hours up on my feet because I had no good study habits. Couldn't seem to retain. was extremely physically tired from, from working and trying to go to school with the kids. And I was falling asleep, and I wasn't sure whether it was for a few minutes at a lecture. We didn't, we weren't fortunate enough to have tape recorders and labs and all these marvelous things set up. You literally had to sit there and take notes. And they didn't care whether you took them or not. And you should have better make the drink or out you went. And I thought I've got to do something about this. And since I was a handler, had been a handler of drugs, I knew exactly what to do. I didn't go to my doctor for any friendly I just went over to the east side of town and ordered a thousand guineas. It was cheaper. And I started taking amphetamines. Not. I didn't take amphetamines to get out of it. I started taking amphetamines to hang in. And I found out that I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. My grades came up. Things were better. I could work harder during the course of the day. Felt good. Never made exceptionally good grades. But I was coming up to a level that was certainly allow me to finish school. And by the upside of it is, by the time I got out of school and I graduated, and the company did become big, we became one of the most sophisticated rubber companies in the United States because we did not make tires and a lot of commercial cars. We were one of the first companies to go into anything that slides and anything to go out of space, our company has a part of. We started making some of the most exotic synthetic materials the world has ever seen. The company did to me exactly what they said they would do. I became the first woman quality control manager in the aerospace business. I became the first woman to be accepted to the American Society for Quality Control, control, which is basically an engineering group, uh, and was for a number of years the only woman member. They didn't know what they had within a drunk and an an addict. Because you see, no matter what reason you take drugs, if you stay on them long enough, you will. And I did. By the time I walked across that stage and had my degree, and the company helped me put my boy in military school, they did an awful lot for me. They only required one year, and it took me six years to graduate, because I had to take rubber technology and a lot of things that I could not receive credit for. They did everything they said they would do for me. They helped me with my son. They only asked for one year of a signed contract because I was a working employee and a, and a student. I didn't have to sign even a three-year contract. I stayed with them to the worst of my alcoholism and drug addiction. I was with them when I stepped off a plane in Omaha, and when I was in the City in 1977, I spent 25 years with them to the worst of all of my things. I was—I used to come to Texas through General Dynamics to LTV. When we were in trouble, I was there. And you know what? When I came to your town, when I came to Texas, because I was a drug addict and an alcoholic and did not know it, I will tell you one thing. You're not shooting it up in your arm and you say, Oh, I don't use. I didn't know it. I knew it. Cost me a lot of money. And I had tried to kick it many, many times. But you see, the one thing I didn't know that I was already an alcoholic, basically that was my drug authority. And that when I'd quit one, i have to quit both of them. And then I'd start back, always on that one drink. I'd sit on that bar stool one more time. It had got to the point where I could not sleep. That, that I, I would go six and seven days and function without any sleep whatsoever. My intake of seed uh, was better than 200 milligrams a day. It got to the point where orally wasn't doing any good. And when I left to go to a place like one of the Air Force bases, if it was in Salt Lake or someplace like that, I had to know how many days I was going to be there. Cause I had to take enough. The company even got me credentials. And when I said to them, and I knew they'd find out when I had to have classification, and I looked at them and said, if he lived like I did as a kid, you'd have a kind of a record, too. And they said, don't worry about it. If you have to go to the government governor, if you have to go to the president, you are know, a perfect example of somebody that has wanted to do better. We'll get that uh, clearance for you. I hadn't gone down on a hard me, so they did get the clearance for me. I had clearance, and I took those credentials, and I abused and used them. I abused every living thing, person, place that came in my path or that I came upon without reservation without reservations I took those credentials that the government of our country was gracious enough to give me and I used them because even that job did not pay enough money to keep me in what I needed but I had to have and I had to take those and use them and so sometimes when we sit behind the desk and we're smug and we look down at the alcoholic who rolls out from under a box card and said, I've never been like that. I sold for my company, I lied to and I used them. When I took two customers out, it was four. When I took four, oh, it was the whole party. When I went twenty miles, home, I went forty. If I went two hundred, what I said. I did the same thing. I would fly out. When I became project administrator for our company, and only responsible for the chairman of the board, that's top parents with the company our Sign. And all I did was T P between us and our companies and NASA and the rest of them. I spent my time. I knew our products well. I took great pride in the products that we produced, and I felt good about the job, but not good enough to do anything about my personal life, because my own personal life was in a hell in a handbasket. I had never had a relationship with another human being on a continuing basis. I could not do it. I stayed single most of my adult life. I bought the home on June Street that I thought I had to have, and I lived in a 21 room house all by myself. Not <laughs> sick or child. I thought that would make me well, weller, better than, as good as. All of the things that you think that is going to make all those things possible doesn't. Many of the marvelous citations and awards that I was presented. From some of our biggest companies, Martin Marinetta, A breakthrough that I was responsible for in quality control. It was unprecedented for a woman to even submit and get accepted. I was so loaded. The night that I was to get the reward, I had to call in and say I had another kidney attack. I couldn't make it because by then I was falling apart and I didn't know what to do. When I had tried coming off of drugs before, it was never successful. And I knew then that the company was beginning to wonder, are they working soon? I had to make some major decisions in my life, and I really didn't know what to do about it. I had just spent 30 days in the hospital. They didn't know what was wrong with me because my intake of oxygen was less than 20%. They thought I had a heart attack, and when they found out I didn't have a heart attack. But prior to that spending that 30 days, I told my secretary, who spent all the years and... Came to Alcoholics Anonymous one time before she was getting ready to get married and leave me when I was speaking. And she said, well, God, I could have told your story better than you did. You didn't tell them any of the good stuff. <laughs> but she was the one who packed my bags and sent me to Palm Springs and said, I want you to go down there. I've made reservations at the spa for oh, you. Yes. And i come back, all oh, after the weekend looking just as bad as i started feeling good. And you know what happens when the drunk starts feeling good? You have to have a drink to celebrate it. By Monday, I was in bad shape as I was before. But that's what happened to me. I learned uh, that I had to come off the drugs because our company started a new policy that every once every year, they sent us down to a clinic down there. And we stayed for three days, and they checked us all out. And I thought, my God. And I was beginning to worry about my world was closing in on me, and I really didn't know what to do. You see, I was dying and didn't realize it. I am not suicidal by the stretch of anybody's imagination in this room. I am no Pollyanna. Never have been and never will. And you know what I get to Francis Channing? People who want to kill themselves said, "Why? It's the dirty S.O.B. B. Let's kill him. I know a lawyer good enough to get you off, my dear. You don't kill yourself. we will go out and kill him. I don't know anything about killing me. Homicidal I am. Suicidal I never have been and yet I was killing myself off because I was powerless to do anything about what was happening to me and I didn't know how to do it. You know, I've left out a lot of my story, and it's getting late. I will tell you quickly, though, that through all of these things that were happening to me, God in his infinite wisdom must have decided, how can I get her for Alcoholics Anonymous? How can I get her help? Because of my own, I never would have come. If you had told me I was a drunk, or even a drug addict. I might have admitted knew I was a drug addict, but never an alcoholic. You wouldn't have gotten me, then. Not for my son, not for any living soul, so I never put him before me. But I have come to Alcoholics Anonymous, so he had surrender me in an area of my life I had never been surrendered in. never had. In my life, Tim Flicks, a nice man. He frankly drank a lot like I did, and it was my shot up at the box for our company to go to the Chamber of Commerce thing We all fought not to go. And it was my time to go to the Chamber of Commerce to represent our company. And so I went. And we had a new company coming into our area. And we all responded with the normal things. And I happened to run into him in a couple of days and remembered him. Nice looking, slight built, tall man with blonde hair, uh, who drank a lot. Just kind of like I did. And he didn't ask me all those questions that most of them asked why I got rid of him. He didn't ask me why I was never available on weekends never asked me why I had two names, two cards, two places. He never asked me any of those things. Of course, he never could remember where in his car. I could never understand a man with a big, blue, baby blue Continental that lost it. Couldn't figure out what the hell he... I he called me at my office asking for clues. <laughs> well, the upshot of the whole thing is he walked into our favorite boarding hole, and we had one hell of a year and a half. Oh, he drank it up all over Los Angeles. Only the best places. I didn't, he didn't even know any folks could not have the farthest idea, he was broke. Anyway, he walked into our favorite boarding place, and usually he he was 7.30 punctual, 7.30. I, in order to make sure, because I'm not very punctual, I arrived at probably 10.30 in the morning and helped the bartender cut up the lines and lemons and get everything in order, make sure all the people came in, all the staunch drinkers and set at their right schools, and everybody was in place. You know, the general was managing again. And uh, so I arrived at 10.30 in the morning, and he arrived at 7.30 at night. And uh, the company trusted me. When I said I was calling on a customer, they believed me. I was an old and valued employee. They believed me, and I to them. Uh, and Neymar, he didn't sit down. He said to you me know, the strangest words I was to ever hear. He said to me, I'm an alcoholic, and I have to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he then added this to it, the kicker. He said to me, would you go with me? And I'll tell you one thing. If he had said right now, I'd have said no. But since he was saying, would you go with me? I thought, next week would be fine. Week, whatever. And I said, yes. And do you know what he did? He looked at his wife. And he said, if we leave right now, we can make a meeting. <laughs> now, I drank up my drink. And we executive ladies. I didn't get to be a tramp until after 10. Uh, <laughs> we, it this was only 7.30. Uh... I had uh, my little black suit, my beads, and my white gloves. My bun in the back of my hair, and I even had glasses on. That's me that business look. Those came off about 10:30, and I was ready to play. Uh, I drank up that drink, put on those little white gloves, slipped off the bar suit, walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll be damned. I've never had another drink since. <laughs>
1: it's unbelievable.
0: I'll tell you, and I've come to realize why. I walked into that meeting, and it was on Ohio Street, in a little place across from the veterans' place, and it was on a night that the veterans came over. It wasn't our big, as I came, came to understand, but it was uh, it was on an off night with that house, that uh, little house that was there. It was normally the Pacific, schools in the and Fancy School, and the... Marie, the sergeant's seat was on Sunday, and it was just a marvelous little. But this night, the veterans came over, the night I was to be there. And then well, the lady. She still impresses me today. She walked down the aisle, and she stood at the podium, and she had a long black velvet dress on, and she had black shining hair, and she had a white bow in it. And she had long velvet streamers running down her dress. And she took the podium, and she said, My name is Lois. And I am an alcoholic and he even had it, had it. And the lady told my story and I said, my God, he you must know about all those pills. He doesn't know anything about them. See, I used to both buy a whole drug stores. When you came to me, I bought your whole works from you. If you were, if the drug store was going down, I gave you a price and you brought me the drugstore, and I said, this is bad, this is good. So I had all this stuff around my place, just asked of them. Jars and friends. I got rid of the rest and kept only the good stuff. He used to ask me what all this was, and I said, well, there's different compounds in, in, uh, rubber, synthetic compounds that we use, and different polymers, and I'm experimenting on my own with some of them here. I said, don't ever touch anything, and don't ever, he said, why have you made it good, fair, bad? I said, quality, quality, that's what we're interested in, quality. The man didn't even know anything about drugs. But as she told my story, and when the lady came down from the podium, it is customary in Southern California, whether you like what the people say or not. You shake your hand and tell them you're glad that they're there. And I stood back. I was only a visitor, you see. I stood back, and that woman walked straight up to me, and she looked me square in the eye. Said, when you were a of survivor, you look people in the eye. And if they don't look you in the eye, you got them. That woman looked me square in the eye, and she told me this. She said, you know, you don't have to go to the end of the line. You can get off now. And I I won't tell you what I thought. I looked at her. And then I saw something that I had never seen before. And I see it every day in Alcoholics Anonymous today. Those guys in little gray slippers. Some of them had on little gray slippers and little bathrobes. Walked up and she shook their hand. She did not look down at them. She looked at them. And it's the first time that I saw a person who I thought was in a superior position not look down at another human being, she looked at And I knew, I knew the lady didn't feel for some strange reason, she didn't feel any better than they did. Based on that and that alone and the way that woman looked, I went home and I said, that's it. I don't know whether I can do it or not. But that's what I'm gonna do. I'm getting off this goddamn train now if I can. And I did. I didn't go to anywhere. I stayed at home. I locked myself in, and I guarantee you that in four days, I could come out. I, I still do that because I still remember it today. I came off at least every morning, I pray, that if I continue to do the things that I am doing in Alcoholics Anonymous, it will never be necessary for me to experience that again. I came off so turkey off of everything and I went to meetings, 11 meetings a week, and I was not happy. I did not walk into Alcoholics Anonymous and say, We'll be just based on that woman, Lois. I said, I can do it, and I thought I could do it, and I did. On my first AA birthday, and I became very sick in Alcoholics Anonymous, you cannot have to your body for as many years as I and get off got free. I, uh, had to have major surgery in my mouth. Both of my arms became inoperable at six months over. I could no longer drive a car. My leg was dragging. Uh, all the physical nerves from the amphetamines and the use of amphetamines for over such an extended time dried out all my bones. The joints between my bones. And I am never without pain. I always know I have arms. Uh, but you can't stay sober. I don't take any medication. Nothing. I use hydroculators, and I've learned to live with it. Because I'm not going back to drugs. Not ever. I, uh, my first birthday, one man that I knew in Alcoholics Anonymous, going to 11 meetings a week, I did not even have a phone number. I was so hostile. I want you to know that it's absolutely a miracle that I could stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. I felt totally alienated from you. I looked around and I said, there's no no people that look like me here. There's no Buddhist people here. You know, I need all of the things. There's not even any half breeds here. <laughs> now I speak at even gay conventions, Do you know what I told them? If you walked around with purple shoes and a purse under your arm, I'd look at you too. <laughs> <laughs> you think you feel different? Well, I feel different. What well, does that have to do with the disease of alcoholism? Don't so tell me what you are, tell me you're an alcoholic. you need an alcoholic synonymous? Do you need our help? That's the only qualification you need when you pick up a phone and call me. I don't care what else you are. Come walk with us. Well, this man said to me, Chuck Cohen, he said to me, I want to give you a, hey, hey, birthday. And I said, what's that? What you see? I said, oh no. No way. I'm not going to do that. And he said to me, uh, We'll just have a little dinner. Would you and... Who would you like to come over? Do you know that he had to invite eight people to my first AA birthday? That I did not have the numbers or phone numbers of eight people. And I will tell you this. Don't do that to yourself. He had a sponsor. I am in sponsorship. I told you that before. I had a lot of things to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a good, strong, whole group, though. They let me be miserable for as long as I wanted to be miserable. Uh, They gave me orders. The whole group said... She doesn't need one of us. She needs the whole Pacific Calisades group. And we were in a very big meeting like they are then. They had split off. And we were a small meeting. And they gave me orders. They sent me down to Marie on Sunday to sergeant uh, On a Sunday meeting and said, you shake hands down there. She says, what are they sending me another one for? And I thought, another one a And so every morning, Sunday morning, I had the green. And I used to count 223. Good morning. Don't sit on the donut table. Don't talk. She doesn't like that. And I did my thing every morning. And you know what my home group did for me? You see, I didn't remember the people because I didn't want to, but they remembered me. And when I was at other meetings, you know what? They had nerves nerve to say, Hello, how are you? You are a Sunday greeter. Are you going to be there Sunday? I thought, yeah, I'll be there Sunday, damn it. That's what they did for me. When I was a year and two months older, they let me read Chapter 5. But that group was an old, aligned group in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what? They knew I didn't know a thing. They did not want to hear from me. They wanted to see me every day. Every Monday, they wanted to see me at my home group. And I'll tell you one quick thing, and then I'll leave you. This lady who called me every Sunday from my home group at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, her name was Kitty, and she was just a little old lady. And the first time she called me, I said, how'd you get my phone number? She said, you remember? Your friend put it down in my book, and I said, I'll kill him." I said, yes, what do you want, ma'am? And she said to me, are you sober? I said, yes. She said, did I wake you up? And I said, yes. And she said, well, if you're sober, you should be up.
1: <laughs> that woman called me.
0: She called me for a year. Kitty called me for a year. But in between that year, and I used to be mad every Sunday morning. And one Sunday morning, the lady didn't call me. It was 8.15, And I said, Jesus oh, Christ, is Kitty going to call me this Sunday? If she is, she'd better hurry up. And then I said, well, I'll call her. And then I realized I didn't have her phone number. I couldn't call her, and when she called me, I said, uh, don't you usually call me every Sunday morning and get me up at eight o'clock? Where were you? And she said to me, I was doing something else this morning. And I said, well, if you're gonna call me on Sunday and ask me whether I'm gonna be there, then make it at eight o'clock and hung up. God, I was glad she was alright, but I didn't, couldn't tell her. I thought maybe she had, something that happened to her. And do you know, after a year, when I was over a year, she had called me. And I called her, because now I had her phone number, and I said to her, Aren't you going to call me anymore? And she said, no. And I said, why, Kitty? And she said, I'm going to tell you something. They told me I was too old to go out and make 12 steps because she didn't come to Alcohol Anonymous until she was almost 70 years old and she had already had eight or nine years when I came in. She said, they're too old. I'm too old to go out and make 12 step calls. But my sponsor has me call every new person that comes to our meeting uh, meeting on Monday. And she said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm glad I don't have to call you anymore. And I said, why, Kitty? And she said, because you're not a very nice person.
1: <laughs>
0: and you know, it was the first time even in Alcoholics Anonymous that something touched me. That woman peeled back the first layer from me. And we became very close. And I said, you don't have to worry. I'm calling you every Sunday morning from now on. <laughs> She died as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a week before she passed away, I had moved to San Juan Capistrano, and I got a call, and Kitty had been in the hospital for two or three days, and I got there, and as soon as I walked in the room, she said to me, three days late. (laughs) But she became my friend. She taught me how to love. She gave me back part of my respect. Part of all of the things that I had no control over and that I threw away, I gave everything away, and I had nothing. You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has done something totally unbelievable. I am freer today than I have ever been in my entire life. I sometimes I think about it, and I it overwhelms me to know today I don't have to look back. This morning when I woke up, it didn't cost me a thing to wake up this morning. Not a thing. And I used to know every day it was going to cost me something. I walk in dignity, taller and prouder than I've ever been in my life. Not in spite of the fact that I'm an alcoholic, but newcomers, because I'm an alcoholic and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. that's the freedom you have given me. You have given me a way unparalleled. To any I have ever known, the gut most of the time is okay. And when it isn't, I don't look at you today. I look at me. What a feeling to have. A feeling of freedom beyond compare. I thank you in dignity for my life. You know, as we, as we hear today, and if you're a new woman on this program, you walk in dignity and pride again. Value yourself and the young ones, your body, and your life. Come to love me. Then give away what you can to the rest of the people that come into Alcoholics Anonymous. You make me very proud to be a part of you. I thank you for giving me my life.